I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The coronavirus pandemic will present challenges for voting in November. On today's episode, we'll look back at past elections during other crises in American history. How were they handled? What were their outcomes? And what lessons can they teach us for the election of 2020? I'm joined by two of America's leading experts on voting and the history of elections. Jonathan White is Associate Professor of American Studies at Christopher Newport University and is the author or editor of eight books, including Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln, which was just released in paperback. He serves on the boards of the directors of the Abraham Lincoln Institute and the John L. Now III Center for Civil War History at the University of Virginia. John, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. And Kim Whaley is a professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law, where she teaches and writes on the Constitution, separation of powers, and more. Professor Whaley is an on-air and off-air legal expert, analyst, and commentator for CBS News, and her newest book is What You Need to Know About Voting and Why. Kim, it's great to have you back on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Jonathan, let's begin with the election of 1864. You discuss it at length in your book, and you've written about its relevance to our current challenges. What can we learn from the election of 1864? Well, the election of 1864 was the first time in American history that a huge portion of the electorate was away from the home at the time of a presidential election. And so a topic that is big today, that is mail-in voting, became a very important subject of debate, political debate during the Civil War. Prior to the Civil War, two states had enfranchised their soldiers when they were away from home. Pennsylvania and New Jersey had both done it during the War of 1812, and some soldiers from those states voted during the War of 1812. By the time the Civil War came around, New Jersey had repealed its law, and so Pennsylvania was the only state with a law in the books that allowed soldiers to vote. A couple thousand soldiers voted in 1861 in state and local elections, from Pennsylvania, and some of them voted as far away as Virginia. In those elections, there was a tremendous amount of fraud, and it led to a number of contested elections at the very beginning of the Civil War. And ultimately, the state Supreme Court of Pennsylvania held that the state law enfranchising soldiers was unconstitutional. At the very beginning of the war, the question of whether or not to let soldiers vote was not a partisan issue. But in the elections of 1862, the Democrats made huge gains in state elections and also in Congress. And a lot of Republicans looked at the situation and they thought, well, the reason we lost in 1862 is that the Democrats are at home voting while the Republicans are off fighting in the field. And so state legislatures throughout the North began debating and then passing laws that enfranchised soldiers. Ultimately, 19 states enfranchised their Union soldiers by the time of the election of 1864. Most of those states allowed soldiers to vote in the field, but four of those states had voting by mail. That is, soldiers could either mail their ballots home or they would send them home with state agents who collected them in the field. And so the question of absentee voting and voting by mail that we are looking at today was a a very important political issue during the Civil War itself. 
Kim, has voter fraud been a concern in times of war throughout American history? And has it been a partisan issue or are both parties often concerned about voter fraud? Well, voter fraud has been, it exists, it exists with every election, but um, many of uh, the studies that, that have been done on this have found that to the extent to which it exists, it's at such small numbers that it isn't uh, scientifically meaningful. It doesn't move the needle in one way or the other. Um, and then, of course, from a legal standpoint there, the concept of fraud means that someone is pretending to be someone they're not. They're going to cast a ballot uh, to pack an election with uh, ballots that don't correspond to actual people. And of course, that requires a lot of steps to pull that off. You have to find ba registered ballots and and read, you know, people that are registered, figure out how to step in the shoes of those people that are that would otherwise vote, and then hope that they don't vote, uh, and then do this in, a, um, in a sufficient numbers that you can actually impact an election. So you'd have to almost have a conspiracy of many voters deciding to vote fraudulently, so that you could that the group could actually impact the election. Um, you know, George Bush and Donald Trump both, and upon coming into office, decided that uh, having done some work on this, that that it just wasn't it wasn't a real concern, a real issue. Um, that being said, but if, if you look back at this debate about whether soldiers should be allowed to vote by mail during the Civil War, I mean that was an important discussion because before that. Uh, voting was considered something you do with your community, uh, and soldiers were not with their communities, and it turned into the idea behind voting was shifted more to, to this individual concept, um, and there were concerns that soldiers couldn't vote well, they didn't have the expertise, and that also they were, they'd be potentially be bullied to vote in a certain way by virtue of the military um, influencing them. But uh, 20 states uh, did authorize um, vote voters to either vote by mail or be furloughed so they could go home and vote. Um, so it, it did have a tremendous impact, notwithstanding concerns about fraud. Jonathan, tell us more about the amazing election of 1864. You say that some of the Democrats' concerns about partisanship turned out to be prescient. And Republican leaders sometimes deprived soldiers of access to the Democrats' campaign literature. At the same time, Lincoln, who was expected to lose the election, refused to change the date and ultimately won the election because the military tide shifted. So tell us about these conflicting pressures. Sure. One of the things that we have to remember is that voting in the 19th century was a very different experience from voting today. Today, there are restrictions on campaigning and electioneering outside of a polling place. Electioneers have to stay a certain distance away from where voters cast their ballots. Another important difference is in the ballots themselves. So today, the ballots are produced by the government, and you take your ballot and you mark off, are you voting the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, the Green Party, the Libertarian Party? You, you select on the ballot who you're going to vote for. In the 19th century, it was very different. The parties actually printed their own ballots, and often they made them distinctive colors. You might get a pink ballot or a yellow or a blue ballot. And so when you voted, 
you would go to the polling place. There would be a huge crowd there. There was a lot of drunkenness. There was often violence. And you would find your party operatives and you would take the ballot from someone from your party. And then you would walk up to the the polling place and you would usually have to step onto a platform. So you're higher than all of the other people around you. And you would deposit your ballot into what was often a glass bowl. That was the ballot box at many polling places. And so there is no secrecy in how you vote in a 19th century election. We don't get the Australian ballot or the secret ballot until later in the 19th century. And so that does open the door for fraud and violence in terms of how elections are being held. If you work for an employer and you know that he wants you to vote a certain way, you're going to likely cave and vote the way that he wants you to vote because you don't want to lose your job. He can see how you vote. And so you can um, you worry about uh, retaliation. Now, all that is sort of background for thinking about how we think about the soldiers voting and also elections at home during the election of 1864. There, I In my book, I document a, a significant amount of intimidation and coercion in terms of Democrats in the field feeling like they do not have the freedom to speak freely about political discussion in political discussions or to vote the Democratic ticket. I found soldiers who wrote privately and said they would vote Democrat in order to avoid getting in trouble with commanding officers. Um, and there were also instances of fraud in, in the collecting of ballots. In, eight, in the fall of 1864, five commissioners from New York were arrested. Two of them were in Baltimore and three of them were in, in Washington, D.C. The Baltimore guys were arrested first and they were accused of making fraudulent ballots to mail home where they were writing made up names of soldiers and officers on the tickets and on the envelopes and, and sending them back to be counted with the home vote. Um, they, all five of the men were tried before military tribunals, even though they were civilians and they were technically violating New York state law, the war department and the Lincoln administration really wanted to go after these guys. The two in Baltimore were convicted. The prosecutor in one of these cases called for a sentence of death to be imposed upon them. Ultimately, they got life in prison. They were let out a few years later. The three election commissioners in Washington were ultimately acquitted, although the War Department was absolutely convinced that they were guilty of trying to essentially stuff ballot boxes and uh, win the soldier vote for the Democrats in 1864. But I think these anecdotes do give a sense that because of the public nature of the voting and, and in some ways the lack of accountability, there were there was room for fraud and intimidation in how soldiers' votes were cast and then also um, in the transmission of them home in the case of the New York people. Now, I don't think the fraud carried the election in any to any extent. The New York Herald, which was an important newspaper uh, in the 19th century, estimated that the Baltimore commissioners or Baltimore agents probably sent home two cratefuls of, of fraudulent ballots. So that wasn't going to change the outcome of the election. Uh, but there was room for fraud and intimidation in that particular election, as there was in a lot of 19th century elections. Kim, you mentioned the shift in the conception of the right to vote from a communal to an individual activity. The historian Alexander Kazar has talked about how wartime has been an engine for expanding the right to vote in America. Starting in World War I, lawmakers began to expand the absentee voting system for soldiers serving overseas. 
Kazar notes that it starts with soldiers but then moves to workers who can't be in town on election day, to women who sacrificed on the home front of World War I before getting the right to vote in 1920, and then the absentee voting was further expanded in World War II and Vietnam. So tell us more about the expansion of the right to vote during wartime. Well, the expansion is, I think, the need for an expansion, it comes from the way the system is set up as an opt-in system, right? That in other countries, you are automatically registered and then you have to decide to get out. Um, other countries like Australia, if you don't exercise your right to vote, you might be penalized uh, with with a fee, for example. In America, originally white um, land owners, and then that tent was expanded over the years to include women, to include formerly enslaved men, to include people between the ages of you know 18 and 21. Um, what in writing my book, what was interesting to me is that we are still really having a debate over whether the right people should be able to exercise their right to vote. Uh, not just uh, is there a right to vote? I think that's well established. Um, but what to do about that? What to do about that right to vote? So uh, these you know, challenges we have: wars, natural disasters, terrorist attacks, nine eleven, um, Ebola. I mean, nine eleven postponed primaries two weeks. Uh, making the decisions about what to do about these challenges with, with respect to voting does come down to a balancing test, a balancing test that happens across the law in really difficult pol public policy decision-making. And here it is, okay, if how much do we value access to the polls? Um, how important is that? How sacrosanct is that? How protected? And how much do we value avoiding fraud? Um, and some would say that the access and protecting make, protecting the constitutional right to vote should be what the emphasis is. And if things fall by the wayside that make it harder or make it easier to get to the polls um, and maybe uh, create complications that could lead to something like fraud, we'll, we'll tolerate it. Others will say one instance of, fraud, instance of fraud is too many instances of fraud. So that's where that's where the primary focus should be, and, and I, I think, I think we see we see this throughout um, these debates about voting under difficult situations. It seems that you know in wartime there's tends to be a sentiment of civic responsibility and come togetherness uh, that might distinguish what we're going through now um, with what we're going might have been happening in. Uh, with World War II, when the Spanish flu ravaged America, um, and then of course in during the Civil War, um, other other parts of the country historically, I wonder at other stages if the sort of strong spirit could have a positive impact on these issues that in this moment are extraordinarily divisive for our country. Jonathan, before we leave the election of eighteen sixty four. Give us a little more of the texture that you explore in your very rich book. You write that while scholars previously emphasized the political conversion of soldiers to the Republican cause, the truth was the army may have seen more of a transformation in composition than a conversion in political sentiment because Democrats either deserted, resigned, or refused to reenlist. One of your points is that we shouldn't expect that we can predict 
simply how people are going to use their absentee ballots to vote. Uh, tell us more about some of those unexpected twists in 1864 and, and what they might tell us about absentee voting today. Sure. So in the election of 1864, 78% of the soldiers who voted, voted for Lincoln. That is 78% of the soldiers from the, the 15 states that allowed voting in the field. We don't know how the soldiers who mailed their ballots home voted because they were counted with the home vote. Most historians have looked at that 78% figure and said, well, clearly the army had become Republican. Clearly the soldiers had come to support emancipation. And they demonstrate that by casting their ballots overwhelmingly for Lincoln. And what I tried to do was tease out some of the information that maybe is just hidden beneath the surface and not take that number 78% at face value. And so I began to look at why soldiers voted the way they did or uh, what their views were in the months leading up to the election. And I found that soldiers' views varied over time. When the war was going well, they were supportive of Lincoln. When the war was going poorly, they were not supportive of Lincoln. I found, again, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of soldiers who voted Republican or at least would not speak out in favor of the Democratic candidate for president publicly because they were worried about being retaliated against. And so intimidation and uh, retaliation was something that they were concerned about. And that then had an impact on how they decided to vote. Because again, voting in the 19th century was a very public act. Another thing that I looked into was was turnout among the soldiers. And I'm, I'm very conservative in the book in terms of how I estimate the turnout. And so I estimate that about 80% of the soldiers who were eligible to vote voted. I think the number's probably lower than that, but I wanted to be very careful in how I presented the number in the book itself. And, uh, I think it says something that 20% of the eligible voters chose not to vote. Now, today, if there was an 80% voter turnout, we would be astounded by that. But in the 19th century, 80% was not uncommon. And so the question is, why did 20% choose not to vote? It was never easier than in the election of 1864 for someone to vote. If you were a farmer at home in a 19th century election, you would have to take a day off and maybe travel miles to be able to vote. If you were a soldier in 1864, you just had to run, walk down your company street to your captain's tent and cast your ballot there. It took maybe 10 minutes instead of hours. And so for 20% of the men to choose not to vote, I think was telling. And I think it says something important of their view of politics. In the 1864 election, the Democratic Party in their national convention or in their national platform had called the war a failure. They said the war was a failure. And to be fair, in August of 64, when they issued this platform, the war was not going well for the Union. But by the time the election came around, things had taken a turn for the better. General Sherman had captured Atlanta. The Union had marched through the Shenandoah Valley. Mobile Bay had been captured. And people had much more enthusiasm for Lincoln and the war effort. And calling the war a failure no longer seemed like a tenable position. And so these soldiers who maybe didn't vote, they didn't want to vote for the Democratic Party. Maybe they were Democrats. And they said, well, th that party has called our war effort a failure. We're not willing to vote for them. But they also weren't willing to vote for Lincoln because Lincoln looked like an abolitionist to them. And so I suggest in the book that a, a significant percentage of soldiers may have chosen to exercise their franchise by not voting 
I, I and I think we see that in 20th and 21st century elections not to vote. Maybe they don't like the candidates or the platforms or what have you. And so they exercise their franchise by not voting. And I think that a lot of soldiers probably did that in 1864 as well. And the last thing I'll say about that is the Democrats nominated George McClellan, who was a union general for the presidency. And he was a pro-war, anti-emancipation Democrat. They nominated a peace Democrat for vice president. And I found letters by a number of soldiers who wrote, you know, what happens if McClellan dies in office? What happens if he dies? We may support him, but there's no way we can support a peace Democrat. And so I think a lot of those soldiers then either reluctantly voted for Lincoln or chose not to vote in the election of 1864. Kim, when President Trump suggested delaying the presidential election, leaders on both sides of the aisle said he doesn't have the authority to do that. It's up to Congress. Many noted that an election has never been postponed before and cited Lincoln's statements that an election is a necessity for upholding free government and that until now it's never been known to the world that it was a possibility to sustain a national election in the middle of a great civil war, but you refuse to change the election. Have there been any other pressures to postpone elections throughout American history? And are there any other significant controversies involving absentee ballots? Well, I understand uh, there was some pressure for Lincoln to postpone an election. It it didn't go very far. Um, Whether there's been talk in, you know, other challenges, challenging times, uh, there's certainly, it's never happened. It's happened in the UK. Elections have been canceled for, for world wars and, and elections in America, no. And it does, interestingly, it seems to be a sort of almost sacrosanct uh, point of view um, across both sides of the aisle right now. When we hear the president suggest that there'll be, that he can move the election, um, we're hearing Republicans in particular that tend to uh, be very um, loyal to him. That's one place they'd say, they'd say that couldn't ever happen. I mean, it could it could happen. There are a lot of scenarios that were that people are um, pressing out between now and November that could go in all kinds of ways. And with this particular administration, I don't think you can take anything off the table as being something they'd be willing to try for whatever reason, whether it be dealing with mail in ballots. Um, trying, saying the election is canceled, but not actually canceling the election, which would then move it to the states to try to determine, you know, how do we certify an election that the president said was not legitimate, and that becomes a political problem. Um, So some of the things that I think are interesting is, of course, the 1918 pandemic is the last that we saw in American history, 675,000 people dead um, in, in America, a third of the population were sick. Um, and the election did happen, that midterm election this for the 66th Congress, uh, notwithstanding closed polling places, um, mask wearing mandates. And there's a lot of dispute like we have right now uh, as to whether masks should have been worn. Um, we know from history that Wilson himself uh, was kind of on the fence about the amount of um, mask wearing, social distancing, et cetera, his soldiers should have to go through. 
So the, all that being said, it appears to be um, that that didn't tr- dramatically affect the next election in terms of who won, but voter turnout was down at least 10%, and in some places um, closed completely. So that is the reality of what we're going into is you know, voting in a time where it's physically going to be difficult to do and one where we're not getting consistent messaging from the government about what to do about it. Those two things are parallels. And it wouldn't surprise me that we end up, as with the 1918 election, we we end up with disenfranchisement or a non-voter participation because it's complicated, because uh, polling places are closed, because um, the information isn't accurately being conveyed to the American people in a consistent way. Jonathan, tell us more about the legal reforms that took place leading up to World War I and during World War II. Norm Ornstein and John Fortier, in their article, The Absentee Ballot and the Secret Ballot, Challenges for Election Reform, note that between 1911 and 1924, 45 out of 48 states adopted some form of absentee voting. Then there was a much more dramatic expansion during the election of 1944 when the military ballot law passed, and that led 2.6 million soldiers to cast their votes from overseas. Tell us more about some of those reforms in World War I and World War II. Sure. So the the soldier vote legislation that was enacted during the Civil War really was temporary. It had a goal of enfranchising the massive Union armies. But in the immediate aftermath of the war, almost all of the states repealed their legislation so that by the time you get to the early 20th century in 1915, only six states had laws that enfranchised uh, servicemen and, and I guess service women from the states that would have allowed women to vote at that point. By the time you get to World War One, you have some voting on in the field in 1916. There were elections that were held uh, for and soldiers from at least two states voted along the Mexican-American border. But then it's during World War One that you see a, a really large expansion of absentee voting laws broadly and then also soldier voting statutes so that by the end of World War One, 28 states allow soldiers to vote. Now, just because the laws were in place doesn't mean that soldiers could vote easily. If they're stationed in France, they're not going to be able to easily request a ballot and then get it in time and be able to send it home. And in fact, General Pershing, who was in command of the American forces, he was really concerned that if you were to have soldiers being involved in the elections, that it would seriously interfere with military efficiency. And so he was not a, a fan, you would say, of soldiers voting. It just, it wasn't practical. Now, by the 1940s, almost every state has an absentee balloting measure and allows servicemen to vote. But again, there's no effective way to collect the votes of men and women who are serving overseas. And so to overcome this, Congress passes a war ballot measure in 1942 that is supposed to make it easier for soldiers to vote. Now, Southern Democrats opposed these laws. John Rankin of Mississippi was serving in the House of Representatives. He called this a communistic law. He said that it was trying to overturn the South's way of life, meaning take the control out of the hands of white Southerners and put it into the control of African Americans. And one of the reasons that he took this position was that the 1942 law exempted soldiers from having to pay poll taxes. 
And so if you exempt people from poll taxes, that's going to allow black men the right to vote in a way that they're denied if they're trying to vote at home uh, in any general election. And so uh, civil rights activists are, are very supportive of this 1942 law. Um, that ultimately does pass, but the law passes very close to the the state elect or the state and federal elections in 1942, and it's so close to the elections that it, it really has a disappointing effect, and it, it doesn't lead to a large uh, turnout of military votes. By 1944, Franklin Roosevelt is in a tough re-election bid. He's running for his unprecedented fourth term. And according to George Gallup, he was essentially tied against the Republican challenger and with the home vote. But FDR, according to the Gallup polling, was leading among servicemen and women 60 to 40. And so FDR really takes it upon himself to try to push through Congress a law that will enfranchise soldiers. And he makes it, you know, he argues for it, making appeals to these men and women are serving their country in wartime. Of all people, they deserve the right to vote. Um, a lot of Southern Democrats were not willing to go along with it, nor were Republicans. And ultimately, a, a sort of watered down measure went through that allowed servicemen and women to vote with a federal ballot, which is what FDR wanted, or to vote according to their state laws. And FDR was so disappointed with this compromise measure that he refused to sign the bill. He allowed it to become a law without his signature. And uh, soldiers took some advantage of the new measure, but uh, not a huge advantage of it. Many still voted under their state laws and voter turnout for soldiers was still fairly low in the election of 1944. Out of the approximately 9 million servicemen and women who were serving overseas, about 30% successfully voted in 1944. Uh, regardless, FDR won re-election that year. And so you could say even though he wasn't successful in getting the law he wanted, he still uh, was successful in winning his fourth term. Uh, Kim, in your book, you describe how voting by mail has not necessarily been a partisan issue in the past because it increases voter participation on both sides of the political spectrum. It benefits Democrats and Republicans. Is this the first time that questions of voting by mail have become a partisan issue? And to the degree that it has become one, what should voters be looking out for about ways that the parties maybe react differently to votes by mail? So there have been, you know, for years, challenges around this concept of voter fraud or ballot harvesting. Those are two terms that we hear. And I think there's, they're misunderstood from a legal standpoint. The word fraud is, implicates an actual crime where you knowingly pretending to be someone else in order to cast a ballot for someone you are not. Um, to... To pull that off, even with $5,000 potential fine, um, requires you to basically pull together a conspiracy of like-minded uh, individuals who are willing to also pretend to be someone else and hope that the real voters don't don't get to the polls before you or aren't, or that they're not caught. It's just it's a complicated thing to pull. Um, to pull off, which is you know why most studies have shown it that voter fraud itself is virtually infinitesimal. Um, now that's a different question than voting by mail or voting through a new kind of technology in at the at the sites. 
um, where the systems are not running perfectly. Um, there, we have new equipment or the, the, the people that are working to determine whether a, a voting mail by vote ballot is legitimate. Um, that takes training. It takes money it, and it takes massive public education, um, around those pieces. Uh, it's, but it's not this nefarious, uh, we want to cheat. We want to ballot harvest election. And I say that just because the empirical data, and there have been many studies, um, one that was from 2010 to 2014, I looked at a billion ballots and found 31 examples of actual voter fraud. So, so to have it, the nefariousness I think is not there, but there is a question that as to whether given all the moving parts, um, given the di- different states, different counties, different ballots, ballots in different languages, um, you know, COVID on top of it, how how is all of this going to uh, translate into an, an efficient, coherent system that we have good data for that would justify um, or legitimize certain candidates? And and I, I think that um, there's a, there's not going to be a good answer to that between now and November. I think. That, you know, this history of voting by mail that we're talking about demonstrates that this is a legitimate approach to voting in America, but ha- nailing it down in a really sound way between now and November is, is going to be probably impossible. Uh, so we we have to uh, manage our expect- expectations going into the fall in terms of waiting for vote counts. And we as Americans have to be really careful about getting the right document uh, signed properly, put in the mail on the right date, um, and that's that's going to be an extraordinary under, undertaking. And there will be people that that just don't do it right and have their ballots um, rejected. Jonathan, it does appear that because of COVID, there will be more absentee ballots counted than before. Um, what can history teach us about what we might expect? Have there been times in history before where we haven't known? the result of elections on election day because of the volume of absentee ballots. And given the pressures on the battlefield that you saw to vote one way or the other, what does history teach us about the kind of partisan pressures that we might see as the absentee ballots are cast and counted? That's a great question. I think that there there certainly can be a delay in the counting of votes. There certainly was during the, you know, actually, as I think about it, before absentee balloting was even a, a concept in America, our presidents were inaugurated in March, not January, because of how long they were thinking it would take for votes to be counted. So early on in our history, I would guess that a number of elections, the result was not known on election day. During the Civil War itself, There was some delay in the counting of votes from the field. And in fact, some states, I think Vermont was one of them, and I think Wisconsin may have been another. The votes were so slow in getting home that they weren't counted in time. And so some soldiers were disenfranchised by virtue of the slowness of the mail. And I I think that probably happened during World War I and World War II as well, where some votes were not counted in time. It would have to be a significant number of votes that would be delayed for us to not know the result on Election Day. And I'm a historian. I spend most of my time in the 19th century, not in the 21st. So it's impossible for me to predict 
what it what it might look like in uh, November, whether or not we would know the outcome. My hope would be that we would know the outcome because I think if we don't know the outcome on election night, it would, it would be, be very difficult for the country. I think if the election is not close, then we will probably know the outcome. But if, if the election is looking close, especially in some of the contested states, the so-called purple states, then it may take a few days or longer for us to to find out the result. But again, I, I wouldn't be able to venture a prediction of what that would look like. Kim, what are you concerned about in the event of a close election? What would happen if it takes days or weeks to get to a final result? What kind of lawsuits might be filed? And what should our listeners be looking out for as a legal matter in the event that the election is close? Well, there are a few dates to keep in mind, really three. One is uh, November 3rd, which is the actual election date. And, And that's important because certain states will require that ballots mailed in be accepted by that date, literally on hand in the state's office. Other states will say there needs to be a postmarked on that date. Uh, Some places there have been issues with postmarks actually being on um, the mail. Uh, Apparently there's bulk mail processes that don't actually get a postmark on there. So that can be tricky. What do you do with those? so that, that's one of the issues. Um, if we see, and I think the midterms are demonstrating, we are going to see an exponential number of mail-in ballots um, across the country, not nothing like they've seen before. And in light of that, like I say, if you're going to have a, if you're going to have a, a, a um, wedding reception, and you expect a hundred and five hundred come, it's chaos. It's very difficult. Right now, they're trying to order the ballots that they need. Um, for say 500 to come and then 50,000 come. I mean, that that's the problem. That's what happened in Kentucky. And that's what happened in New York City, which is part of the delays. So delays are possible. Um, the way to avoid that is to register early, is um, to uh, get your ballot mailed in as soon as you have it. And then ho- hopefully that these states can have sufficient funding uh, to run these elections well. Now, what happens if, okay, you're counting, counting, counting. The second date is February, it's December 14th. December 14th is is the date in which the electors actually have to meet to to vote for the president. Remember, we don't actually vote for for the person who's going to sit in the White House. We vote for electors that will then uh, translate our votes into a a slate of votes by the electors. They they meet on on the 14th. So the question then is, um, what happens if the states aren't ready to 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 vote for their electors? Um, it looks like without Congress amending that date, they're stuck with that date. But there is some flexibility; they could decide to to states could decide to vote for their electors in a different way, so long as there's a certain number of days prior to the 14th that they've made that clear. Um, that gets a little tricky because you know you get politicians making decisions on how to vote for electors that may or may not take into account, um, properly take into account what the voters actually wanted. So so, so the delay is a pro- potentially a problematic in determining, ultimately getting to uh, a, an election that people believe is legitimate. And in the meantime, the Republicans in particular, we know are 
engaging in very aggressive litigation across the country, uh, unprecedented litigation where changing these systems to account for pandemic voting are being challenged. And we can also imagine counting, vote counting being challenged, um, even on a sort of granular basis, uh, even, in, you know, whether it's the entire state or it's a particular precinct. Um, we saw, you know, George Bush won the, won the election um, with 537 votes in the single state of Florida. So these, these litigation disputes can actually have an impact. And then, um, and then we are in potential indefinite chaos. Uh, and then worst case scenario is people jump the gun and start calling elections without all of this being resolved, all, everybody's vote being counted. Um, and depending on whether what side of side of uh, that count you are on, it's not difficult, particularly post Portland, the violence and the protests we saw in Portland, it's not difficult to Im- imagine people taking to the streets saying, listen, my candidate's votes were not counted um, or that election was not fair because X, Y, Z, and then it escalates. Well, it's time for closing arguments. Jonathan, if you were to pick the single most important contested election in American history that was carried out during a crisis, what would it be? Well, I guess since I've been talking a lot about the election of 1864, I'll I'll stick with that one, or I could also include the election of 1860 in this as well in terms of historical analogs in that in these 19th century elections, there was a tremendous amount of enthusiasm on the part of the voters. And we see a lot of that today, people very politically engaged. If you're on Twitter or Facebook, people are posting about politics all the time. If we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, I think we would be seeing large rallies with the candidates. We're not seeing that because of of the pandemic, obviously. Um, and, and there's an echo there of what went on in the 19th century, the enthusiasm that, that young people especially have today in a way that they did in, in the 1860s. In 1860, there were young men, thousands of them all over the country who formed groups known as Wide Awakes, and they would march through the cities carrying torches at night, campaigning for Lincoln during Lincoln's first run for president. And this was a spontaneous thing where it was not organized by the parties themselves or by the Republican Party itself. It was young men. It started in in Hartford, Connecticut, and then spread throughout the country like wildfire, where they would march and campaign for Lincoln. And they did it on their own terms. And I think that that sort of public engagement in terms of politics is is a foreshadowing of the public engagement of a lot of people today uh, marching in the streets and um, being active in social media for their candidate or for their cause or for their beliefs. Um, I think, too, then the election of 1864 offers a very helpful parallel in terms of thinking about the partisanship behind absentee voting. By the time you get to the election of 1864, one party supports the voting in the field and the other party opposes it. And it was a very partisan issue in the same way that voting by mail today has become a partisan issue. 
Um, ultimately, Lincoln held that elections were necessary and that they had to be held. And, and you offered a, a quote from him earlier in this discussion that Lincoln gave after the election. And some people have said, well, it was easy for him to say that after the election. It had already happened and he had won. And so it's easy for him to say that, of course, elections are a necessity. But Lincoln held that belief throughout the, the Civil War. He maintained that he was fighting for the legitimacy of elections. After all, he had won in 1860 and the South had seceded. And from Lincoln's perspective, you just can't take your ball and go home. You win some, you lose some, but you've got to play by the rules of the game. And in during the election of 1864, Lincoln's Secretary of State, William Seward, gave a speech that some people interpreted as saying that Lincoln might not hold the election or that maybe if he lost, he would still hold on to power. And some Marylanders went to the White House and met with Lincoln to talk to him about that. And this is just a very brief excerpt from what he said. He said, I am struggling to maintain government, not overthrow it. I am struggling especially to prevent others from overthrowing it. I therefore say that if I shall live, I shall remain president until the 4th of March, which is when the next inauguration would be. And that whoever shall be constitutionally elected, therefore, on November shall be duly installed as president on the 4th of March. And that in the interval, I shall do my utmost that whoever is to hold the helm for the next voyage shall start with the best possible chance to save the ship. This is due to the people both on principle and under the Constitution. Their will constitutionally expressed is the ultimate law for all. And I, I think that Lincoln was making a very important point that is very relevant today, that the Constitution and the law and the will of the people are ultimately what must rule. And he was willing to submit to that in 1864, even in the summer of 64, when it looked like he might lose. Uh, Kim, the last word is to you. Um, what can the states and Congress, given the fact that they have primary responsibility over voting, do to ensure that 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 Lincoln's inspiring vision that the people's will will rule uh, will occur on election day. Yeah, there's another sort of I think irony though with Lincoln in uh, under the current times because he was also roundly criticized for using abstract sort of concept of war power to do things that even today we would think would be astonishing and improper for a president like. Uh, suspending the writ of habeas corpus, using military tribunals to deal with civil um, cases, uh, even the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, so he was, I think, a. Uh, we think of him now with so much um, fondness and respect, but there was a editor of Wisconsin paper who wrote, uh, "The man who votes for Clinton now is a traitor and a murderer. If he is elected." To misgovern for another four years, we trust that some bold hand will pierce his heart with dagger uh, point for the public good. So in a way, um, hearing, looking back, it makes me feel that we're not, uh, history isn't so... Um, uh, so unique right now. What we're sometimes it feels like we're we're in this brand new world, but we're seeing, you know, deeply divided uh, country at war. In 1918, we see the pandemic, and we see uh, we're kind of in, in a current situation where we have a president that is that is dividing the country. We don't have a war, but we have this this overwhelming um, pandemic that the president, different president, is not 
communicating to the American people accurately in terms of the implications and people are feeling anxious. Um, what can be done? Congress can do some things right away. They have the power under the Constitution to change federal elections. Congress could uh, have universal mail-in balloting. You know, Congress could do things at least decide this is the one ballot that's going to be used so Americans aren't confused going from one ballot to another, or this is how you are going to register. There is motive regist- voter registration, but expand that to other places. Um, hard to think Congress is going to do that between now and November. Congress could, the Brennan Center for Justice has asked for $400 billion. Um, only a fraction of that has come through the, through the COVID bills. Congress could give money like it has to, you know, the PPP and these other um, really expensive uh, efforts to save uh, America, frankly, in the midst of the pandemic, could say, "Listen, uh, our the election is 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 a priority, and give enough money so that there could be safe elections um, at the polls, that mail-in balloting would be done on time, uh, and and done safely and done clearly, and that there would be a." massive um, voter education program that goes along with that. I mean, that's part of the reason I wrote the book is because the statistics show that American civic education is just so, so low. And then when you're in this moment where you've got to be up to speed on new information, it really puts people in an almost impossible situation. They've got to figure out where do I vote? How do, what do I do? I don't know what. So it's, it's really a a multi-step process that I suggest. Number one is get on your state secretary of state website and register. Um, some states you get an automatic mail-in ballot. If you can, if you can request one, request the mail-in ballot at the same time. Um, if you're going to use your mail-in ballot, make sure that you follow the directions and sign it where it needs to be signed. If you need more, more than one person to sign it, sign it make sure more than one people sign it. If it needs to have a signature on the outside envelope and the inside envelope, you know, going through the specifics and doing it exactly right will make sure that your vote actually matters. Now, if you, if you're close to the election and you want to make sure that your, that the postal service gets your vote there on time, we've saw some issues based on time stamping, um, the best thing is to go and find an actual drop-off location or go to the Secretary of State's office and hand in your ballot or do it in a ballot drop-off box because those are not reliant on the Postal Service. If all of that fails, you find out where you can vote early and, and you go early and if you can in your state. And if all else fails, you show up on the day. And in some states, you are going to wait for long lines. Some states, it'll be easy. You show up on the day with your hand sanitizer and your masks and your water and granola bars and whatever, plan to sit there. And if they tell you that you're at the wrong place, um, that, you know, you registered somewhere else or your registration is, is not, it's not complete. You ask for what's called a provisional ballot under federal law. You have to get a provisional ballot and then you fill that out. Depending on the state, you might have to follow up with more information, but that's really kind of a, you know, multi-step way of making sure that your that your vote counts and and that it does take that i think it this is a moment where every american needs to take their right to vote into their own hands and um not expect government to have things in place um that it'll that it'll that you they will do it for you or 
have it done in a way that's smooth. It might be, but for many places it will not. And uh, nothing's more important. Uh, we saw some of this conversation, you know, the the course of history changing and you know, Lincoln winning the Civil War decidedly um, and not in some kind of compromise um, with a mandate that was really clear. I mean, these votes do do have a, a tremendous impact. So um, getting the numbers up, I mean, Lincoln was what, 74% of people voted. Of course, women couldn't vote back then. Um, the last presidential election here was 55%. And if those numbers were a lot greater than that, I think we'd see fewer opportunities for such slim margins that people uh, have to challenge the legitimacy of the vote itself. Thank you so much, Jonathan White and Kim Whaley, for an illuminating and rich discussion of what history can teach us about close elections and the right to vote. Jonathan, Kim, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Jake LaFranz, Nicholas Mosvick, and Lana Ulrich. We the People Friends, in the spring, the National Constitution Center hosted a series of free live online classes on the Constitution. My colleague Curry Sautner and I offered them three times a week, and 30,000 students joined us. I'm thrilled that our schedule of constitutional classes for the 2021 school year has just been posted. The classes will begin on August 31st. If you are a parent, teacher, or a remote learner hungry to learn about the Constitution, please sign up and share it with your friends. We would love to spread this great resource with as many people as possible who are learning at home. It's so exciting to be able to offer them, and I hope you'll enjoy them. The schedule is at constitutioncenter.org forward slash learn, and you can register there, and there's a full schedule from September through the spring. Hope to see you online. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts, and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from across the country and around the world who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.